0: From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins.
1: Good evening and welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm. I'm a senior fellow for Biblical Worldview here at Family Research Council. It's my pleasure to be with you today on this last Monday of February. Today on the program, the Air Force has announced that it will remove adverse information From the records of service members who did not get the COVID vaccine, is this a sign that we are coming to our senses and we will no longer be removing service members who did not get a vaccine that was for many of them unnecessary? We'll talk about that today. Also, a Tennessee law would ban drag queen shows in public and in front of children. We'll talk to the sponsor of that legislation about what he's hoping to accomplish and what kind of opposition he's getting in the legislature as well. At the end of the program, we'll talk about a couple different churches who are facing a similar dilemma. The Anglican Church and the Methodist Church seem to both be at an inflection point over the definition of marriage and the morality of homosexuality, and this issue appears to be splitting these churches. What's causing the division? What will the result be? And what does it mean for the future of these denominations and Christianity around the world? All of that is coming up today on the program. But first, our headline. New intelligence has led the Department of Energy to join the FBI in concluding that a lab leak in Wuhan, China, was responsible for the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, it's been three years since the start of the pandemic. And you may remember that suggesting the virus was created in a lab was once not only called a lie, but also a conspiracy theory and also racist things have changed. But what does this new disclosure reveal about our federal bureaucracy and its ability to lead? Joining me now to discuss this and more is U.S. Representative Rich McCormick. He serves on three House congressional committees, as well as the select subcommittee on the coronavirus pandemic. He represents the 6th Congressional District of Georgia. Congressman McCormick, welcome to Washington Watch.
2: Good to see you today.
1: It's good to see you, and I also believe uh, this is the first time that you have been with us on Washington Watch, so I just want to take a moment and welcome you on behalf of our audience to Congress, and just thank you for being here, and uh, give you a chance to just tell us very briefly what what got you to this point.
2: It's my pleasure. Some of it's just a continuation of my service. I was a Marine Corps helicopter pilot for about 16 years, did some airborne time, uh, served some time in the Persian Gulf, Africa, the Far East. Uh, then got into medicine and actually joined uh, the Navy, stationed at a Marine Corps base uh, with my last duty station in Afghanistan as the head of emergency medicine in 2016. Was an emergency medicine practicing in the civilian world uh, during the entire pandemic and actually got angry with uh, some of the people in my own party on some of the things that were happening and, and uh, it got me involved and, and here I am uh, sitting in front of you as a guy who's never been in politics, never went to a meeting, never went to a fundraiser, never knew a politician until I decided to run for Congress and and uh God willing, uh, I'll be a uh, great representative for people who just want to make a difference.
1: And it is people like you that we want in Congress. And so we are grateful uh, that you are there and that you are with us today. And I want to get right into the stories here. Uh, the Department of Energy making news, uh, unintentionally, but this leaked uh memo about their position saying that it was – In their judgment, the most likely explanation at this point that the coronavirus is caused by a Wuhan leak of the virus. What's your reaction to this?
2: I think it makes total sense. Uh, As a uh, physician and somebody who's uh, probably the only person in Congress who's treated thousands of patients uh, who had coronavirus, if you think about the epidemiology of of this disease and how it could occur, uh, one thing they haven't done for those people who thought it came from bats or dogs is continue to test those uh, those species to see if it continues to exist in those species. Because if it did, then maybe you could make a case. But if it doesn't, it never came from there in the first place. It makes much more sense that in a city that houses a, uh, a, a research center that actually studied uh, SARS-type uh, behavior and actually modified the disease and actually was the epicenter of where this disease began, that makes sense. As a deductive reasoning-type person, somebody who's actually – thinking about how diseases evolved. And by the way, this took several leaps uh, that wouldn't just happen in the – it realized most uh, viruses that occur in species stay specific to that species. Occasionally you have avian blue, swine spoon blue, and other diseases. But this one took several leaps. Uh, it became very deadly and very specific to humans, and it makes much more sense that it was developed in a Wuhan lab.
1: Now, one of the interesting parts about this story is not just that information, but the way the discussion about this release has gone. The White House is, of course, being forced to react to this leak. And I want to play a couple different reactions and then get your reaction to their reaction. This is John Kirby, who is the coordinator for strategic communications now at National Security Council. Let's play clip one. There's not been a definitive conclusion, so it's difficult
3: for me to say, nor should I feel like I should have to defend uh, press reporting uh, about a possible preliminary indication here. What the president wants is facts. He wants the whole government designed to go get those facts. And and that's what we're doing.
1: Congressman McCormick, I'm going to play one more. But right there, we're hearing the president wants facts. Now here's... Jake Sullivan, he's the national security advisor, and he had an exchange with Dana Bash at CNN over the weekend. Let's play clip three.
4: Did the coronavirus pandemic start in the lab? Is that what you believe now?
2: Well, Dana, there is a variety of views in the intelligence community. Some elements of the intelligence community have reached conclusions on one side, some on the other. A number of them have said they just don't have enough information to be sure.
1: Now, Congressman... I actually kind of like these responses. They're saying we need to get facts. There's a variety of positions. We don't know anything for sure. Why has it taken three years for us to get to the point where we want to make the facts? We want to wait for the facts to come in before we have very strong opinions.
2: You will never have the facts because China is resisting any sort of uh, investigation of this that that would be fair and accurate. Uh, That makes me, once again, by deductive reasoning, suspect that even more that it was developed in the Wuhan lab. Uh, One of the things that drives me crazy they talk about facts and searching for the truth, and yet the entire time anybody uh, stepped out of line with what the government said was the most likely cause, which turns out to be the least likely cause, they stifled us, they censored us, they called us uh, crazies, Uh, they even talked about uh, our treatments of the disease or even uh, any sort of origins of of modification, anything contrary to the government's opinion uh, was entirely censored, and actually we got threatened. Uh, I remember when we talked about masks or treatments or the origins of the disease. Anytime I had anything contrary to what the government believed, not based on facts, by the way, but based on opinion, uh, based on their chosen experts, uh, I was literally stifled. I was censored and I was threatened uh, even with my own licensing. Uh, That's the problem with their quote unquote facts in search for the truth.
1: And I think that's how a lot of America feels about this. Measured responses are helpful, but we should have started there. Now, Congressman, one thing that's interesting about all of this is kind of the knee-jerk reaction early on to deny the possibility. And if you look through the record, and we don't have time right now, uh, people like Dr. Fauci were pretty confident that this did not come from a lab. That seemed to be a fringe, or at least uh, there was an attempt to frame that as a fringe response. I understand why the Chinese government would want to label that as a fringe response and deny that as, as some kind of conspiracy theory. But why were there so many voices in the United States, even within the United States government, that wanted to marginalize that theory?
2: I think we'll be asking that question in hearings because that is a legitimate question that they can't answer right now. Why would they jumping to conclusions without the facts? Why would they demonize anybody who has uh, sincere questions on the origins of this, which would actually uh, point to a nation that had harmful effects on the rest of the world? And uh, and there's going to be not only just health consequences, but financial consequences for uh, decades to come.
1: Yeah. Now, Congressman, I want to switch topics with you a bit because you serve on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. China, speaking of China, continuing to, has called the U.S. sanctions on Chinese companies involved with Russia illegal because we now know that China has – uh, in recent weeks, getting uh, much cozier with the Russian government supporting their invasion of Ukraine. Uh, what are your thoughts on this idea that U.S. sanctions on Chinese companies uh, because of their involvement with Russia is illegal?
2: Well, there's nothing illegal about sanctions. There's something that we do all the time. Uh, we've done it to Russia, we've done it to Iran, we've done it to other countries. Anytime this is what we do in, in governments, we, we sanction governments to uh, play bad ball. Anybody who has ill intent towards uh, what the world is trying to accomplish. I mean, you're going to have people gang up on you. There is a new axis of evil. I think we could definitely say that China, Iran, and Russia are, Ill, are playing bad games, trying to harm people. I've seen the pictures. I've seen the evidence uh, of what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, you can honestly say this is a country that was invaded by a foreign government. Uh, their sovereignty has been uh, overrun. Uh, we're seeing Europe and the United States and other countries unite behind a country that's been abused. Uh, We should not have China or Iran or anybody else aiding a country who's doing something obviously wrong.
1: How do you think the United States should be responding to this growing partnership between Russia and China?
2: I think you're seeing it right now. I think we're coordinating with other countries to sanction. I think this is what puts people into a situation where they have to choose a side. Uh, This is a world economy. This is a world power struggle. There are forces of good and evil at hand. There's, there's people who get to determine their own uh, destiny. There's other countries that think that a ruling class of government gets to determine everybody's uh, destiny. And this is what we're fighting for in the very heart of the American politics. Who is in control of your life? Is it the individual or is it the government? And we're not just fighting that over against a foreign country such as China or Russia, but right here in the United States. Who gets to determine your own destiny? Uh, all along, what's made America the most unique, successful country in world history, the greatest country to ever live, is because we've empowered people over government, and that is in jeopardy right now. Amen
1: to that, Congressman. Over the weekend, ABC host David Muir asked President Biden about the spending in Ukraine. Here's their exchange, and then I'm going to give you a chance to respond. Let's play clip five.
0: We know the vast majority of Americans support Ukraine, but there are now many who are asking, how long can we spend like this?
2: Well, first of all, I'm not sure how many are asking. I know the mega crowd is. The, the right-wing Republicans are, you know, talking about we can't do this.
1: Congressman, what's your reaction to that?
2: I think he's politicizing something that should not be politicized, just like they did with coronavirus. Uh, every time they hear something they don't like, they try to blame it on the far right. These are legitimate questions. If you're going to help a country, you have accountability. It shouldn't be foo-fooed. Uh, I do think we should have a strong response against invading Russia. I think it is a coordinated effort between at least 30 nations right now. But I think we have to make sure that we answer the people's concerns. That's how you maintain a popular support of any conflict is by answering questions, having accountability, having transparency, and you shouldn't be foo-fooing anybody's concerns when it comes to their hard-earned tax dollars. And that's
1: a very fair point. And there is a thread there in these, in these stories that you point out there. When we first were ask, asking questions about the potential of this virus being released uh, from a Wuhan lab, those were referred to as xenophobic and racist questions for either, even raising those questions. Now, when a question is raised, how much money should we spend on Ukraine? Is it infinite? Those are uh, signs that you are a MAGA Republican, which we all know is not supposed to be a good thing these days. Uh, Congressman, you're on the Foreign Affairs Committee. What's your hope for uh, the situation in Ukraine? How is this going to be resolved, or when is it going to be resolved?
2: It was good to see when we were both in Munich and Brussels recently to see a bunch of countries come together for the first time in a very long time, decide that what we talked about before, which is you have to support your own national defense. You have to put at least 2% of your GDP involved in, in securing your own defense, uh, like they agreed to many, many years ago, which Trump called them out on, and they didn't take it seriously. And even a year ago, they were saying, oh, Russia's not going to invade. They're not going to invade. And all of a sudden, they did. And now you're seeing a bunch of countries scramble. And they're actually stepping up, though. What I like about it is it's uh, drawn uh, countries like Germany into the fray. They've actually become closer to the United States. They're starting to understand the uh, significance of a strong military. Uh, there's other countries all along the Baltic and, and the Balkans. Uh, stepping up, and they're going to do their part. And I think it's a good thing to unite us.
1: Congressman Rich McCormick, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Coming up, the Air Force announced it will no longer go after service members who are unvaxxed. We'll talk about it when we come back.
5: Would you like to spend consistent time in God's word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible.
4: Learn more at frc.org forward slash life.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm. It's my pleasure to be with you. Quick reminder that the website is tonyperkins.com. The Air Force announced Friday it will reverse disciplinary action against service members requesting religious exemptions from the military's vaccine mandate. What this sweeping policy change means in practice is that involuntary discharge proceedings against service members will stop immediately. We saw, once again, government overreach based on faulty information and can celebrate this win. But what does it mean now? Join me to discuss it is Aaron Seary. He's an attorney representing Air Force service members in a mandate case. Aaron, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you. Good to be be here. It's good to have you. Now tell us uh, how you reacted to this recent announcement from the Air Force.
5: Oh, it's great. It's great news. Um, You know, the Air Force is slowly winding back all of the harm that they've caused um, as you mentioned, we represent the the members of the Air Force that sought a religious exemption to the COVID-19 vaccine, and we are very pleased that the, uh, the federal court granted a classwide injunction against the Air Force discharging any member of the Air Force who sought a religious exemption from COVID-19 vaccine. And the Sixth Circuit upheld that class-wide injunction, and so uh, that relief, once set in place, prevented anybody from being discharged. And and then, of course, Congress passed the law. Uh, spearheaded by Congress Masson and, and others to then repeal the really, uh, COVID-19 vaccine mandate in the Air Force. So what's left now is what I would call root and branch relief. It is uprooting, not just fixing on the surface the problem by getting rid of the mandate, but but going all the way down to the roots. And every single wrong that has been inflicted on these members of the Air Force for trying to hold tight to their religious convictions, the first freedom, Under our constitution, must be remedied. This announcement is one more step. It's not a full step. It doesn't fix it all, but it's just one more step towards what I again root and branch relief. And what this does is it, 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 it is the Air Force announcing they're going to remove any negative marks, Gomars flags that that service members have on their records. So we still have a ways to go. We still have to make sure and we made this clear in our lawsuit with the DOJ, they have to unwind. Uh, anybody they've discharged for this wrongfully, anything less than honorably needs to have a discharge that is now uh, elevated back to honorable. People that didn't get paying points need to get their paying points. Folks that didn't get proper flying time need to get catch-up time mm-hmm. and various other things that need to be remedied still. But we're very heartened uh, this is a step in the right direction.
1: So, to that point, you mentioned that this does not necessarily reinstate those who have been dismissed from the airport or from the air force, excuse me over the vaccine um, but it stops the proceedings for those who are in the process of being dismissed. What remedy, if any, is available for those who have already been removed but would like to be back in the air force uh, uh,
5: so the j- just as a point of clarification the um What stopped the proceedings to discharge anybody was an injunction issued many months ago, um, issued in the the class action case we brought, and then it was affirmed in the Sixth Circuit. And so those proceedings stopped long ago. And what this, uh, what was just issued um, three days, two, three days, two, three days ago was that the Air Force put out an announcement that if you got any Flags on your record, gomars or any other negative marks on your official record those would be removed they would be erased, and that's critically important if you're in the air Force right. and you want to advance in your career you can't do that with a gomar on your record you're actually right. stuck so that's what
1: that's what that that's what that
5: did okay. um and, and i'm I'm sorry and the other part yeah. of your question was.
1: No, you and I'm wondering for those who have already been dismissed, if they oh, wanted I, to get back in, what what do you think this means for them?
5: Sorry about that. Yes, um, as for those that have been dismissed, um, what it means for them at the moment, there is no order that that says, hey, if you've been dismissed, you can just come right back in where you left off. That is not yet in in the works. That has not yet been issued by the Air Force. Um, um, uh, the first step is to make sure that anybody that was dismissed can at least have an honorable discharge. For those who want to go back in, they should have that opportunity. And that's something that we're working on still within the confines of the seeking, like I said, uh, root and relief within this lawsuit that we are uh, still in the
1: middle of. We're talking to Aaron Seary, who is representing members of the Air Force in religious exemption cases uh, regarding the vaccine. And Aaron, you mentioned that the the courts had previously stopped uh, the dismissal of service members over this issue. We now see the Air Force, and in fact, other branches are as well. The Marine Corps has lifted its requirement that you have to have a COVID vaccine to be deployed overseas. So the military is changing their policies. Do you see this as a recognition by the Pentagon that mistakes were made, or is this simply just surrendering to what the courts said they must do?
5: Yeah, (laughs) I would like to think that, um, that the, those that run the military recognize that they did something very wrong here. They were sworn to protect and defend the Constitution. They asked those in the branches of our military to lay down their lives if they must to defend the Constitution. And the very first freedom in the Constitution, the freedom this country was founded on is religious freedom. And they did not respect the religious freedom of those who, for example, did not want to participate in products that involved abortions, abortive fetal material, which all the currently licensed and authorized COVID vaccines did. They are all involved fetal material either in the development or in actually the formulation itself. They have a serially held belief against that. Our clients, for example, are the plaintiffs in our suit. They're fine with getting other vaccines. They just don't want to take any vaccines that involve what they consider to be murder. So, no, I I think that the reason that the the brass in the military is acting is because they are facing legal action with these judges that's not looking very good for them. These judges are, are, are thankfully upholding that First Amendment right and holding the brass to what they've done wrong and making them remedy it. And so I think that's, unfortunately, what more so what is forcing them to, to remedy what they've done wrong, not so much a recognition of what they did wrong.
1: Well, hopefully that will come with time or simply new leadership, because uh, this was a problem. It continues to be a problem. But Aaron Siri, we're grateful for you uh, jumping into the fray on behalf of those who have been threatened and by what the Pentagon has done here. Aaron Siri, thanks for your time today as well. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up after the break, there's some good news out of Tennessee, a bill that would protect children from drag shows in public and elsewhere is being debated. We'll tell you about it with the sponsor of the legislation when we come back here on Washington Watch.
4: Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture?
1: Back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm sitting in Fort County today. We'll be back in the chair with you tomorrow. But until then, it's my pleasure to be with you. A quick reminder that you can ask Mayor Norton and the Port Wentworth City Council to issue a public apology to former Officer Jacob Kersey for having discriminated against him because of his faith and for violating his First Amendment rights. You'll likely remember that Jacob Kersey is the police officer that was forced out of his job because of his public statements made in his private time about what marriage is. If you don't want that to become a more common part of life in America, we encourage you to sign the petition at frcaction.org slash Jacob. Or you can text the name Jacob to 67742. That's text the name Jacob to 67742. Now, as the left continues their effort to create an anything goes culture, many are busy trying to protect children from the consequences. And that includes lawmakers in Tennessee who last week passed out of the Tennessee House a bill that prohibits sexualized performances from taking place on public property or in a place where it could be seen by a child. This legislation has been depicted as banning drag queen shows, but a careful reading of the bill shows that reducing it to those talking points, well, kind of misses the point. Joining me now to discuss this is the author of the bill, State Representative Chris Todd. Representative Todd, welcome to Washington
6: Watch. Thank you. Good to be with you today.
1: It's great to have you. Uh, Tell us, what are you
6: hoping to accomplish with this bill? Mainly protecting children. Uh, It's been surprising to me that uh, my community found out the hard way last year that Uh, A local group wanted to have some adult-oriented type entertainment in front of children, called it family-friendly, and my community stood up and said, we absolutely will not have that here. And we found that the state law that's been in place for a long time uh, technically covered it, but getting a DA to do anything about it uh, was kind of risky, and uh, we decided that we needed to strengthen that law so that the DAs felt more empowered to uh, pursue these cases.
1: Now, on February 12th, or 24th, rather, a drag queen named Bella Bell was discussing your legislation at a drag show. And here's what he had to say. Let's play clip six. If this law passes on April 1st, public drag will now be criminalized.
4: I
0: could go to jail for 15 years for appearing outside in drag.
1: Now, the audio quality is not great there, but to uh, reinforce the point, uh, said that this drag queen has uh, said that he could be put in jail for 15 years for going outside in drag as a result of your legislation. What's your response to that?
6: Uh, that's totally inaccurate. Uh, that is not what the bill is about. It is about uh, adult-oriented type entertainment that is harmful to minors. And in our uh, Tennessee laws, we already have harmful to minors described in uh, detailed. And so this ties that to the, what would be harmful to minors. Uh, they would have to be performances that are sexualized in nature or showing some nudity or appearing unclothed before it would violate the law. And It would have to be in a public place uh, if you're doing those things, or in a place where children could see it. For example, a restaurant that was having some kind of a show that involved the sexualized type uh, uh, material that we're talking about, then that would also be included in this where it could not take place with children present.
1: Now, a lot of parents will hear your description and say, that seems quite reasonable. What kind of reaction are you getting from your constituents, from legislators, from the people in Tennessee?
6: Well, certainly the 99.9% of our constituents and, and the folks in Tennessee are law-abiding citizens anyway, and they have been appalled that children could be exposed to this anyway. So uh, they're very pleased uh, right now that we we finally got something in place that will close up a loophole and make sure that we don't have children uh, that are uh, affected by this very negatively and uh, very proud to to have carried this with Leader Johnson in the Senate Uh, It was a team effort to make sure that we can protect our children.
1: So what is the status of your legislation right now in the Tennessee legislature?
6: Uh, There's a technical approval that will need to be uh, done in the Senate, and that may be done this evening. And then it will go then to the governor's office. Once both speakers sign it, then the governor will be signing it.
1: So you do expect the governor to sign it there? I certainly do. And we certainly hope he will. Now, on a related issue, I want to bring this up with you. Virginia, West Virginia, uh, Mississippi, Arkansas, Florida, several other states are debating or have passed legislation that would require age verification to access pornography online. Do you think that's um, another way? Do you think there's just this growing awareness of all of the the threats to the innocence of children and, and that we can work together in a lot of ways to uh, protect that?
6: I'm sure. Absolutely. I think there are a number of ways to do that. We have age verification for a lot of things, and I think it's certainly appropriate to do it for any kind of materials like that that would be harmful to minors.
1: But, of course, on all contentious issues, and there that's what this is, there is always opposition. How would you describe the nature of the opposition that you've gotten either from the public or in the legislature? Are are they thinking that this is not a reasonable uh, step to take?
6: Well, I think those in the public have uh, primarily, we, we've heard from, uh, that that have been opposed to this, are misconstruing it as the clip you just showed. They're, they're creating something that doesn't exist. Uh, the others, though, that actually want children exposed to these bad things, I believe, are supporting pedophiles because uh, we've had testimony in committee that that's exactly what these kind of uh, uh, entertainment shows are, directed toward, and that is to groom and recruit children to a lifestyle that uh, that they're not old enough to even understand. And so um, very, very, very proud to uh, have carried this and really proud of my state because uh, so many of our constituents have stepped up to the plate in numerous communities around the state for these fr- family-friendly shows, and it said, absolutely not. We're not going to yep. have that here.
1: Representative Chris Todd from the great state of Tennessee, thank you for your time and thank you for le- your leadership as well
6: good to be here with you thank you
1: coming up next couple church splits developing over the issue of marriage we'll talk about it when we come back
3: what is biblical masculinity in our culture of gender confusion there aren't many examples of godly manhood men husbands and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood leadership and strength but where can they find it in our culture With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, Family Research Council created a tech subscription platform to be sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. It is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. So if we get canceled, you can still access updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742 and you will get alerts on the biggest stories of the day. With just a simple text, always have access to our content and stay informed and connected with like-minded community. Text STAND to 67742. That's STAND to 67742.
4: Are you a university student? Do you know a university student? Specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further.
2: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm
1: Joseph back home, sitting in for Tony today with you. A growing rift over biblical marriage has divided the Church of England. Church leaders recently voted to abandon biblical teaching and support a proposal permitting same-sex couples to receive official church blessings and prayers. In response, the Global South Fellowship of Anglican Churches, which represents 75% of the worldwide Anglican Communion, strongly rebuked this position. In addition, the Methodist Church is experiencing conflicts over marriage and LGBT issues as well. What's causing these divisions? What will it mean for these churches in the near term and over the next 100 years? Joining me now to discuss all of it is David Klaassen, the Director of the Center for Biblical Worldview at Family Research Council. David, good to see you today.
0: Hey, thanks for having me. Great to be with you, Joseph.
1: Good to have you. Now, tell us a bit more about this story. First, let's start in the Anglican Church, the Church of England. Uh, What's going on here?
0: Yeah, it's a fascinating uh, development, what's happening over there in England. So just a couple of weeks ago, uh, the the Church of England got together, and that's kind of the, the mother church of the worldwide Anglican Church. Uh, For their annual meeting, and after several years of studying the question of same-sex marriage, and after I'll add coming under intense pressure from government leaders, uh, because again, the Church of England is the official state church of the United Kingdom of England, and after years of studying this issue, they decided not to change church doctrine. Uh, they decided not to change the definition of marriage as how the church has always understood the definition of marriage. However, uh, they did decide that they are now officially going to allow priests who choose to participate to allow special blessings uh, for same sex. Uh, couples who want to receive these blessings. So if a same-sex couple were to be legally married, they could come to their local church and receive a blessing. Now, it's, it's interesting. Part of what they did is they released a statement, Joseph, where the, the official uh, leaders of the Church of England said that they lament and repent of the failure of the church to welcome LGBTQI plus people. In a couple of years, they're going to have to add more letters to that. Then they, they lament and repent of the failure to welcome these people and for any harms that LGBTQI plus people have experienced and continue to experience in the church. So it's a, a muddy statement that they've put out trying to yeah. almost find a third way and to be determined guidance will be given on what kinds of blessings and prayers these couples will be allowed to receive.
1: And let's get into that. You you stated this as a muddy statement, and I would agree with that description. Let's see if we can provide some clarity, because you note that they did not actually change their official church doctrine with respect to marriage and presumably homosexuality. Correct me if I have uh, described that inaccurately. But will the Church of England now perform same-sex marriages, or you describe this as a blessing that they will give? Is Are they trying to make a distinction between those things?
0: They are, Joseph. That, that, that's what was so fascinating. You know, Historically, kind of the Anglican Church, the Church of England was kind of seen as like a third way between historic Protestantism on one hand and the Roman Catholic Church on the other. So they've kind of always prided themselves on trying to find a third way. And that's kind of what they're doing here. So they've officially said that they are not changing church doctrine. And so same-sex couples cannot get married in a church that's owned by the Church of England. However, once they get legally married... They can then go to the church to receive a blessing. Now, again, that blessing and the types of prayers they're allowed to receive, well, the church said, stay tuned. We'll get with you on that, on the kinds of language that you that those blessings will take. So clearly what's happening here, Joseph, is that the leaders of the Church of England are trying to kind of come up with a third way to make everybody happy, and they're trying to make everyone happy. They've made nobody happy in the process
1: yeah i'm sure that that is true but that is the nature of this issue is when you when you try to play both sides of this fence you end up getting yourself split in half um but but david you mentioned earlier that there was pressure coming uh, from the politicians or from the politicians to the church or from the church to the politicians, which, how is that working?
0: Yeah, again, fascinating dynamic. And this is kind of hard for some of us to hear in America to wrap our minds around because we don't have a state church, uh, famously so. Uh, But in England, they have a state church. And so some of the members of kind of the upper echelon of the church are actually members of parliament. And so you have, they serve in the House of Lords, but you have members of parliament, um, especially members of the Labor Party, who in recent years and earlier this year, uh, because the church has been studying this issue for several years, and they said, uh, essentially what these politicians have said, is that the church doesn't change its position. If they don't do something, Then maybe we should enact special legislation to maybe take some of the privileges and rights away from the church. And so I think this kind of third way approach that the church took a couple of weeks ago, some have interpreted this as trying to appease some of these politicians, again, many in the Labor Party, who have started breathing down the neck of these church officials saying, hey, same sex marriage has now been legal for, you know, uh, since I think 2014 in England. It's time for the church to get with the program. So, again, I think this was kind of the church's attempt to so-called get with the program. And, again, they've made nobody happy.
1: It does feel like a political compromise made by politicians about an issue uh, that is supposed to be uh, theological uh, in nature um, and presumably not something that you can just kind of – parse and negotiate your preferences. We're supposed to be consulting with uh, the chief theologian on such matters. But you also mentioned, David, uh, that there is strong opposition to this position that has been taken chiefly uh, among the Global South Fellowship of Anglican Churches, which I understand to be chiefly, if not entirely, in Africa. Tell us about that response and what's happening there.
0: Yeah, so this is astounding. So kind of the way that the Anglican church is set up, you know, the Church of England kind of is the mother church, uh, the historic uh, first uh, church. Uh, but since then, uh, there, there's hundreds or thousands of, of Anglican church uh, across Asia and Africa, even some in South America. And in response to the decision of the Church of England, Joseph, Uh, You had about 15 uh, leaders in in these different countries kind of overseeing different uh, dioceses uh, release what what is nothing short of a remarkable rebuttal uh, to the Church of England. And this is signed by leaders uh, kind of in the global south, which really compromises 75% of the Anglican membership. And, And one line I'll read to you, Joseph, from their statement. They said this. They said, as the Church of England has departed from the historic faith passed down from the apostles by this innovation, that extraordinary language, the, the, describing what the, the move of the Church of England, describing this as an innovation, and, and this is absolutely nothing but a historic innovation. You know, the, the Christian church for 2,000 years has been clear on the morality of homosexuality and same-sex marriage. So what the Global South leaders are calling an innovation is absolutely an, an innovation. And so that what, and then they go on to say that the Church of England has chosen to break communion with those provinces who remain faithful to the historic biblical faith. And again, Joseph, I couldn't have put it any better. That's exactly what's happening. So it's, it is encouraging uh, to see church leaders in other parts of the Anglican communion speaking out forcefully and describing what the Church of England is doing is nothing less than a historic innovation in the Christian church's understanding of same-sex marriage.
1: That is a strong statement. Has the Church of England responded to that in any way?
0: I believe they have, and I think that the statement that I saw was uh, they said, well, you know, they're calling for unity right now and kind of just for the next couple of months to be a season of just hearing one another out, which... Again, they're just trying to buy time because, again, the Church of England for the last several years has been studying this issue. They know what they're doing, um, and the, the global south is set to meet later this year. And you could see uh, some sort of actual rift and official divide happen in the Anglican yeah. community over this issue, similar to what we've seen in the Methodist church here in this country.
1: And we're going to get to that in a moment, but let's continue on the Anglican train for just one second further, because we talk about this global South, and we have the Church of England, which is actually the minority of the Anglican Church. It also, um, for for the purposes of this discussion, I'm going to point out that's the white part of the church, and then you have the non-white part of the church in Africa and Asia. And we used to refer to that. In in other contexts, we would uh, refer to the... uh, to the, this is some kind of imperialism. It's basically sexual imperialism that the West is now trying to impose on the West of the rest of Africa and Asia, saying you must submit to our new understandings, our new innovations, as they described it, about sexuality. It's not likely to be framed that way by the West, though, is it?
0: It's not going to be framed that way by the West, but it's being received that way uh, all over the world, Joseph, whether it's the churches in Africa and Asia and Oceania and South Africa, they entire they they use the language of cultural imperialism, theological imperialism, and they they view kind of these Western elites looking down their nose. And what's amazing about the statement from the Global South leaders is they're saying, we're the ones who are holding to Orthodox Christianity. We haven't moved. You're the ones that are drifting and giving up historic Christian teaching. We're not the ones that are moving here.
1: So isn't this the moment where the social justice warriors are supposed to come to the defense (laughs) of the non-white nations that are being targeted by this kind of ideological colonialism?
0: You know, those who play the identity politics surely don't know what to do with this when you, you have these dynamics. Uh, but unfortunately, Joseph, I think so many of these cultural elites, including in the Church of England, are so beholden right now to the moral revolution that even though one of their other kind of uh, pet projects with uh, multiculturalism or whatever you want to call it, uh, when these things come to logger jams, it's interesting to see, Joseph, the moral revolution seems to always win.
1: Right. Sexuality will always trump whatever claimed objections they have to the white patriarchy spreading its uh, invidious ways across the globe. When the white patriarchy serves their purposes, they will no doubt be okay with that. Of course, uh, for our purposes, we understand that this should never uh, be considered in terms of white and black and the color of the people expressing the ideas is totally irrelevant. Uh, We should always be on the side of truth. This just illustrates Uh, One of the challenges that you face when you pretend uh, to value people's perspective more or less based on their skin color. But, David, in our remaining minutes here, let's talk about the other church that is experiencing a similar divide, the United Methodist Church. Tell us what's happening there.
0: Yeah, just just briefly, in twenty nineteen, the United Methodist Church, which uh, one of the largest denominations in the world, they have about five and a half million members in the United States, uh, they reached a kind of a, a point where uh, over the issue of same sex marriage and homosexuality, they couldn't find agreement. And so what's remarkable is that the conservative uh, Methodists kind of demanded uh, that they reach an agreement to where these churches could keep their property, they could keep their buildings, and so uh, the deadline is approaching later this year. So across this country, in the 30,000 United Methodist churches, each church now is having to have a time of deliberation, and then they have to have a vote, and that vote needs to be two-thirds. And if it's two-thirds, then each individual congregation can leave the United Methodist denomination. And so it sets up a real about 1,800 churches, maybe closer to 2,000 of the 30,000 have, including some really large churches, have voted to leave Joseph. But to leave, you have to make that decision, and you still you're still on the hook for some money as well. And so it's going to require every pastor to show courage in leading their congregation through this. And thankfully, we've seen some big examples in Texas and South Carolina recently, uh, where those churches have decided to leave. Uh, over the issue of same-sex marriage and homosexuality.
1: So you say 30,000 United Methodist churches are going to conduct an election between now and when was the deadline? I think it's at the end of this year. Okay. That is certainly a story to follow because, again, the United Methodist Church, one of the mainline denominations, the Anglican Church, historic mainline uh, denominations. David, just um, near-term and short-term, how do you think these things are going to play out? Yeah, I, I've been encouraged
0: in the reports I've read, Joseph, of different uh, pastors leading their people through this. Because, again, as Christians, we do care about the unity of the church. And we should strive for unity. That's what Paul exhorts in the New Testament. But when you have different denominations that take a clear stand against God's mm-hmm. word, you, you can't unify over something. Like that. There, there's no third way of standing for biblical truth or compromising and giving in to the moral revolution. And so the way I see it playing out is I think you'll see many congregations making bold, courageous stands to leave. I think many, probably the vast majority of United Methodist churches are just going to say, we're not going to do anything because we don't want to be perceived as political. And by virtue of not doing anything, the default decision they're making is staying in a denomination that is sliding towards uh, complete acceptance of the moral revolution.
1: This is just further evidence that in this revolution, the sexual revolution in this cultural war, there is no neutrality. It is coming for you. And we are finding uh, the ground in the corner where you can hide and stay away from it is shrinking around us. And eventually everyone is going to have to plant their flag and make that decision. But David, then look longer term. We know that there's going to be a split within the Methodist church. There's going to be a split within the Anglican church What's that mean for these various sides as you look forward generations?
0: Yeah, when you look forward generations, I think the the theologically conservative, faithful, orthodox denominations are going to get smaller. And I I lament the influence that it's going to have on society and culture when you have a shrinking church. But I do think we'll find centers of vitality, centers of fidelity to God's word. And my hope is that those churches will be bastions of truth and, and incredible witnesses to their community. And so culturally, a shrinking church is... You know, that's, that's not good, but I do think that there will be uh, bright spots all over the map in this country and elsewhere of churches who choose to be faithful. And we need to pray, even outside the, for churches outside our own denomination, pray for faithfulness. Because at the end of the word, God has a side on these issues, and we want to be on his side.
1: And David, you mentioned the various ways in which we are looking for a third way to avoid the conflict. But let's remember, at the heart of the gospel, the beginning of the gospel is repent and believe. There is no third way. You either repent and believe or you do not repent and believe. Jesus doesn't give us any other options than that. Therefore, we do not present any other options to the world. David Claussen, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Joseph. And friends, I want to reiterate the last point that David made there. In all of these conflicts in the Anglican Church, in the Methodist Church, and perhaps in your church, Pray for wisdom. Pray that truth prevails. Pray that God wins. And that we all have courage because, in fact, we need to fear God and nothing else. We'll see you next time here on Washington Watch.
2: Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought
1: to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action.